On behalf of Carla Hayden, uh, who cannot be here tonight, I welcome you to the prep. Tonight is the last night of March, and this just happened to be Women's History Month, and it's been a very, very busy month for the prep. So tonight, we have another person who's going to help make us special. Matthew Moore is going to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Thank you for organizing this, and thank you for letting us use the facility. It's wonderful to share a treasure with Baltimore and the uh, general area. Uh, I've known Christy. I've been lucky enough to have known Christy for almost 12, 15 years, maybe. And um, we're ending Women's History Month. Is that what she said? So I'll keep it short, not being a woman. Um, but she has opened my eyes through her work to some very interesting stories. Uh, politics is very interesting. It, it tends to move in cycles. I've, reading Christie's previous books, have picked up on themes that I would never have been aware of had, had her gift not been shared with us. And this most recent book focuses on two very interesting first ladies that when you look at it and you think, Women really are at times, and most of the time, Emily, uh, behind very successful people and very successful men, but they are also at critical points throughout the juncture in our history of our country. And it really is a wonderful thing to have Christy come. I hope you enjoy tonight as much as I've enjoyed your company and our dialogue over the last years. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Matt, and thank you, Sam and Stephanie, for this lovely evening. As Matt mentioned, it's been almost 100 years since Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912, and now candidates for Congress and the presidency are already gearing up for the election in 2012. In the coming days and weeks and months, we're going to see plenty of images on TV and in newspapers and magazines of a man, and 85% of the time the candidate is still a man, with his wife in a little red dress and a big smile, and the candidate will introduce her and say she's essential to the success of his campaign, and she is. It may seem glamorous up on the podium with lights and cameras, but the life of a politician's wife is no bed of roses. The wives of congressmen, governors, and presidents all contribute more work than is commonly understood and at greater personal cost. My book is about the wives of Woodrow Wilson, Ellen and Edith. They were both essential to his presidency. Both had to deal with enormous pressures, different but equally heavy. Ellen was the sweetheart of his youth. Woodrow met her in 1883 on a trip to her hometown, Rome, Georgia. As a good Presbyterian, he attended church where her father was a preacher. He was attracted by her beauty, but he quickly learned that she was a great reader and a thinker. She loved poetry. It was said she could supply an apt quotation for any occasion. She was also artistic. She had sent some of her artwork to Paris to an exposition 
and had won a prize. You can imagine that for a woman like this, there were really no suitable men in Rome, Georgia in 1883, and she'd sort of given up on the idea of getting married. They began to call her Ellie the Man-Hater. She planned to open a woman's boarding house and support it with her artwork. But then she met Woodrow Wilson. He was a lawyer, he was smart, he was ambitious, and best of all, from Ellen's point of view, he was idealistic. She wrote one of her friends that she could fall in love with him, but she didn't intend to. However, Woodrow proposed marriage, and she surprised herself by accepting. They could not get married at once because Woodrow Wilson was going to Johns Hopkins to earn a PhD in political science. So for the next two years, they wrote each other hundreds of letters, creating the intimacy on which their marriage would be based. Woodrow became Ellen's mainstay when her husband, when her father developed mental illness. He had suffered from depression ever since serving as a chaplain in the Civil War. In 1884, he was committed to an asylum, and he died shortly thereafter. Ellen had been caring for them and was now free to pursue her own interests. She had always wanted to study art, and Woodrow still had a year to go at Johns Hopkins, so off she went to New York City to attend the Art Institute. She loved it. She painted with all the American Impressionists, but she discovered she was really not in the top tier of talent. And for a woman of that period, you had to be in the top tier if you were going to make it professionally. So she decided to give up her painting and to dedicate her energy and her talent to her husband's career. They married, and Woodrow became a professor. He wanted to be a public servant, a politician, but he did not have an independent income, and he felt he could not afford to do that. His career as a professor took off because he was assisted by Ellen. Woodrow Wilson was very smart, but he was uncommonly bad at learning languages. Ellen translated books from German, and she made digests of political treatises for him. They started at Bryn Mawr College and later went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. During this time, their family expanded, and they had three daughters. During her third pregnancy, Ellen developed kidney trouble. Her doctor told her that if she had no more children, she ought to be all right. They had no more children. In part due to Ellen's efforts, Woodrow was invited to teach at his alma mater, Princeton University. Their family expanded again when Ellen's brothers, Stockton and Eddie, came to live with them. She also opened her home to the students at Princeton. Talking with the students, she encouraged them to adopt the honor code that later became a hallmark of a Princeton education. She also helped her husband write his speeches. In 1896, he was invited to give the speech commemorating the 150th anniversary of the founding of Princeton. This was going to be a very big occasion, and the intelligentsia from all over the United States was invited to attend. If you look at the manuscript of that speech, you will see notes on it in both of their handwritings. She also told him to rewrite the ending and make it sore, and she told him to read John Milton for a template. He did, as she suggested, and the speech was a great success. He was cheered to the rafters. 
it was clear that he was destined for greater things. Ellen loved being a professor's wife. For her, that was just the pinnacle of ambition. One afternoon, after attending a play, a performance of Macbeth with her brother Stockton, she said to him that perhaps ambitious men should not be encouraged. But she said, how can wives who love them do anything except help them? And she did love him enough to do what she could for him. Sure enough, he was soon elected president of Princeton University. Ellen had to entertain the faculty at a series of dinners. She entertained former President Theodore Roosevelt. She entertained the African-American educator Booker T. Washington, much to the horror of her Georgia aunts. She also had family responsibilities. She homeschooled their daughters. Stockton had inherited some of his father's mental troubles and was in and out of institutions, but he always felt that Ellen could take better care of him than anyone else. Her youngest brother, 16 years younger, was like a second son to Ellen, or was like a son. She had no sons. Uh, he was clever. He was funny. He could fix anything in the house. Woodrow liked to say that he had every virtue, including the virtue of not being too good. He married. They had a child. Everything seemed very happy. But in 1905, a tragedy befell them. They were driving in a carriage, and the horse bolted and ran away and plunged into a river, and all of them were drowned. Ellen was just devastated. She could hardly speak for the next two months. She was just beginning to recover when, in the spring of 1906, Woodrow Wilson woke up one morning blind in one eye. He suffered from hypertension. In those days, there was no medicine to control high blood pressure, and the doctor said that he would have to take a vacation every six months. And they did that. In January of 1907, they were planning to go to Bermuda. And Ellen, at the last minute, had to stay home to take care of one of their daughters who'd had an operation. So Woodrow went by himself. Two days before he was due to come back to Princeton, he met a fascinating woman, Mary Allen Hulbert Peck. She was the foremost social hostess of the island. She entertained the governor general. She entertained Mark Twain. And Woodrow was very taken with her. When he returned to Princeton, he began to write to her. Now, he wrote to a number of women, and Ellen encouraged him to. She knew she was not especially cheerful, especially not after the death of her brother. Woodrow looks like a very solemn, somber man, but he wasn't. He was very silly. He loved to sing and dance and tell jokes and make limericks, and she knew that he needed somebody cheerful to keep him company. So she encouraged his friendships with other women. However, the following year, in January of 1908, they were getting ready to go back to Bermuda. Once again, Ellen had to stay home because her brother Stockton was going to make a lecture tour and wanted her to go with him. Before Woodrow left, she issued an injunction to watch himself with Mary. It was no use. There on that island paradise with all those soft breezes caressing his skin, he became completely infatuated with Mary. There is a scrap of paper in his handwriting, in the shorthand he used, that says, My Beloved Mary. When he got back to Princeton, Ellen realized that this 
relationship was different, and she accused him of emotional infidelity. The summer of 1908, Woodrow Wilson went to England. Ellen went to Connecticut and took up her painting again. Their correspondence that summer is very interesting because all of Ellen's letters are missing. Woodrow's letters are pleading her to forgive him and take him back. His final letter is very happy because she's apparently relented, and he writes, it's better to be forgiven if you don't deserve to be. You might have thought at this point that he would have severed ties with Mary. Instead, he and Ellen visited Mary back at her home in Massachusetts. Why? Well, we don't know. It could be that Ellen wanted to see her rival, see what kind of a woman had captivated her husband. It could be that she wanted to show Mary that she was the wife and she had the better claim. In any case, the relationship did not end. And Ellen made the decision to pretend that Mary was a family friend in public in order to protect Woodrow's reputation. Back in Princeton, Woodrow Wilson was in a world of trouble. He had tried to make reforms to the institution to make it more democratic and was facing a lot of resistance from the faculty. He decided to tour the United States to appeal to the alumni to support him. In those days, there was no television, and radio was still not a popular medium for entertainment. So people would turn out to hear good speakers. Thousands of people turned out to hear Woodrow during this tour. The reforms never passed, but the politicians of New Jersey took note, and they invited him to run for governor, and he did. In 1910, he was elected governor. Now, Ellen had new responsibilities. She undertook reform activities, like many middle-class women of that era who were not quite ready to go into politics. They figured that working in their communities was an extension of their work as housewives. You could clean up your house, and then you could clean up your community. This was called municipal housekeeping. And she took a great interest in the state welfare agencies. The Wilson administration was successful. He pushed an ambitious reform agenda through the legislature. And Woodrow Wilson began to be mentioned as a candidate for president of the United States. Ellen realized that if he were going to run for president, there was an important step he had to take. William Jennings Bryan, who had three times been the Democratic nominee for president, had been insulted by Woodrow Wilson a few years before in public. So she arranged a small, intimate dinner so that Woodrow and Brian could get to know each other. This was very successful, and they were soon speaking from the same platform. Woodrow began speaking all around the country. Ellen followed his progress in the newspapers and wrote him letters and sent him telegrams with advice, such as, stop saying you're not running for president. It just makes you look foolish. He stopped. She also campaigned with him throughout the South. As far as I know, she was the first future first lady to campaign with her husband before the convention. She was very popular. At the Democratic convention, Woodrow won the Democratic nomination, in part because of the support that he got from Bryan. In the Republican convention, the Republicans split. The nomination went to the incumbent, William Howard Taft. 
He had been challenged by former President Theodore Roosevelt. When Roosevelt lost the nomination, he started a third party, the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. During the campaign, Roosevelt's advisors suggested that he bring up the rumors about Woodrow Wilson and Mary Peck. And they said that they had letters from Woodrow Wilson to Mary that were very incriminating. And Theodore Roosevelt said, no, that would be wrong. Also, he said, no one would believe me. Who's going to think the man is a Romeo when he looks like a druggist? <laughs> the fact is, his relationship with Mary was fading. He was too busy, and she was preoccupied with her son, who had drinking problems. In November of 1912, Woodrow Wilson won. He and Ellen set off from Princeton to Washington, and if you see pictures of them leaving the train station, you can see that her face is becoming round and puffy. The White House was not a health resort. Of the five previous first ladies, three of them had sickened or died in office. The day before the inauguration, their youngest daughter found Ellen in her room crying. But she was undaunted. As first lady, she felt it was her responsibility to use her position for better. She undertook what we would now call urban renewal. She wanted to work on the alleyways that were directly behind the US Capitol. These were narrow streets with substandard houses, dirty, dark, full of crime and disease. The National Civic Federation had been working for years to get legislation through Congress to tear down those buildings and to build model homes for the residents. As far as I know, Ellen Wilson was the first First Lady to lobby outside of the White House for a cause of her own, not on her husband's agenda. She got a White House car, she took members of Congress through the alleys and pointed out those squalid conditions that existed right behind the marble halls where they were working. Perhaps this activity wore her out, or perhaps it was a resurgence of her kidney disease. In any case, in the summer of 1913, the doctor curtailed her activities. Woodrow and her daughters insisted that she go to New Hampshire in the summer of 1913. She agreed to go, although she cried when she left. When she got there, she loved it. It was an artist colony. Maxfield, Maxfield Parish was there. She had a wonderful time. She wrote a letter to Woodrow saying, it is a luxury to be alive. Perhaps that was a premonition that that summer would be her last. Over the next year, her health worsened. She managed to hold White House weddings for two of their three daughters, but by June 1914, she could no longer get out of bed. At the end of June, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated. Woodrow Wilson was distracted by the worsening conditions in Europe. The doctor was in denial. Both of them attributed Ellen's illness to nerves. But on August 6, 1914, it was clear she was dying. This was two days after all the European powers declared war on each other. Woodrow was in and out of her bedroom, reading briefing papers while he was holding her hand. Realizing she was dying, Ellen made two requests. First, she sent word to Capitol Hill that she would die more easily if they would pass the alley bill. And the House took action, in time for her to receive word before she lost consciousness. 
The Senate later took action, and the bill was passed, but because of the outbreak of the war, it was never implemented. Her second request was to the White House physician. She said, Doctor, please look after my husband. And then she died. Woodrow Wilson was overwhelmed with grief. He wandered the halls of the White House. He was unable to concentrate. The doctor was worried. After all, his patient was the president of the United States and the world was at war. Woodrow could have turned to Mary, who was by then divorced from her husband, but their relationship had cooled, and in any event, it would have proved the rumors about them that he was involved with her while his wife was still alive. By the spring of 1915, the doctor decided to take action. He introduced Woodrow Wilson to his friend, Edith Bowling Galt. She was a widow. She had inherited her husband's business, Galt Jewelers, in Washington, D.C. She drove an electric car, very modern. She was flirtatious. She was 15 years younger than Woodrow. She was cheerful, bursting with vitality. The first night she came to dine at the White House in a long black velvet gown, Woodrow Wilson's Secret Service man said to the valet, oh, she's a looker. And the valet said, yeah, he's a goner. And he was. She began visiting the White House all the time, ostensibly to see his daughters. But after just two months, Woodrow proposed marriage. He said he had to declare his intentions because he couldn't otherwise keep making excuses to see her. She refused. She said they hadn't known each other long enough and had been only a few months since his wife's death. Two months later in July, she was invited by his daughters to visit them in New Hampshire. Woodrow proposed again, and this time she accepted. But they decided to keep the engagement a secret. 1916, the following year, was going to be an election year, and it still had not been one year since Ellen's death. There was another wrinkle in the romantic saga, and that was Mary. He confessed the relationship to Edith, he called it a folly, long ago loathed and repented of. She forgave him, but unlike Ellen, she made sure it was over. They announced their engagement in October of 1915. Even before their marriage, Woodrow shared everything with Edith. He showed her secret State Department documents, explained the issues to her. He wanted her to be involved in every aspect of his work. She wrote... I love the way you put one dear hand on mine while with the other you turn the pages of history. They were married in late December of 1915. They went on a honeymoon to the hot springs in Virginia. They were called back early to the White House because of the worsening situation in Europe. The first thing that Ellen did when she entered the White House was get rid of the twin beds in the presidential suite and install a double bed. And her public entertaining was complicated by the war. She couldn't invite the diplomats from warring parties to the same event, so she had to have two sets of diplomatic din dinners. She was a big hit as a hostess. She had a hearty handshake and was very fashionably dressed. In the 1916 campaign, she was also popular. At first, she was very shy. She didn't even want to have her picture taken, much less make a speech. But Woodrow's handlers encouraged her to participate. They thought she was an asset who warmed up his image. 
Woodrow Wilson was narrowly reelected with the slogan, he kept us out of war. But soon after his inauguration in March 1917, the Germans resumed unrestricted submarine warfare and the United States entered the war. Now Edith had a new role as First Lady. She worked at a Red Cross canteen every week. She became the national leader in food and fuel conservation. But everything she liked best had to do with Woodrow. She liked to name the battleships. When he had to sign the commissions for new officers in the army, she made a little game out of it, whisking away one letter to blot it and then putting a new one down in front of it. Her real job was keeping the president healthy. Every day she dragged him out to play golf. They both enjoyed it immensely, although they were both terrible. The war ended on November 11, 1918. Woodrow made the unusual decision to go to Europe to negotiate the treaty himself. He was the first sitting president to travel to Europe. Of course, Edith went with him, and she was the first first lady to go to Europe while in office. In the beginning, it was a triumph. They stayed at Buckingham Palace. They went down the Champs-Élysées, and people threw flowers at them. Edith wrote home that it was a Cinderella existence. But as soon as the negotiations began, began, they became much more difficult, and Woodrow's health began to deteriorate. Finally, in June of 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, providing for a League of Nations, an international body, to mediate disputes and prevent future wars. But back home, Woodrow faced an intense fight with the Senate, the Senate did not want to ratify the League of Nations because they felt it would encroach on their constitutional power to declare war. Woodrow decided once again to take his case to the American people. He planned a train trip all across the United States. It was September. It was very hot. They had metal cars that were not air-conditioned. They set themselves a grueling pace. And as the train wound up through the Rocky Mountains, the altitude began to tell on his blood pressure. In Pueblo, Colorado, he broke down. They raced back to Washington, but a few days after they arrived, he suffered a devastating stroke. He was paralyzed. He could hardly speak. No one knew what his mental faculties were like. As president, he was incapacitated. At this point, only a very few people knew Woodrow's true condition. Edith stepped in and assumed more power than any First Lady had ever done. She instructed his doctors and the White House staff to keep Woodrow's condition secret. If his condition had been known, his opponents would have forced him from office. Woodrow did not think that his vice president would fight as he had for the League of Nations. The next 18 months, the remainder of his term, Edith later characterized as her stewardship. She determined who would be allowed to see Woodrow and what issues would be submitted to him for consideration. Some say that if he had been allowed to see other people, he would have changed his mind and compromised with the Senate over the League of Nations. That's possible. But in fact, Edith herself tried to get Woodrow to compromise with the Senate. She felt that his failure to compromise would mar his place in history. 
She admitted in a memoir she wrote 20 years later that she tried to reason with him on the issue. She said she only tried it once, but we found evidence that she tried it at least three times. Ultimately, he didn't agree, and she didn't insist. She deferred to him. The administration limped through the next 18 months, the rest of his term. The Wilsons left the White House in March 1921 and retired to S Street in Washington, D.C. Edith nursed him tirelessly, but he continued to go downhill. Despite her efforts, three years later he died. But she lived on another four decades. She continued to act as Woodrow Wilson's first lady. Woodrow Wilson was very unpopular when he left office. She spent the next 38 years trying to rehabilitate his image. She made his birthplace in Stanton, Virginia, a museum. She collected his papers and picked his first biographer. She wrote a memoir. She collaborated with Daryl Zanuck on a movie over which she had control. She celebrated his centenary in 1957 when she was in her mid-80s. In 1961, a new bridge over the Potomac River was going to be named in his honor. Edith was invited to preside at the dedication on December 28th. But she was 89, and she had contracted pneumonia. She never got there. She died on the day it was to be dedicated, Woodrow Wilson's 105th birthday, thus linking her fate with his forever. Today, Woodrow Wilson is considered one of the 10 most important presidents of the United States. Ellen helped him get to the White House. Edith helped him stay there and ensured his legacy afterward. They both paid very high costs in personal terms but both of them felt it was worth it. If they had led tranquil lives, married to ordinary men, they would not be remembered today. Ellen could have been speaking for them both. When, at the end of her life, she wrote to Woodrow, it has been the most remarkable life history I ever even read about, and to think I have lived it with you. I wonder if I am dreaming, and will wake up and find myself married to a bank clerk. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you very much for the talk. Thank you for coming. I, I, just, I just have a brief comment and a question. Thank you. Um, President Wilson's career, uh, his administration is rather checkered. Um, he had issues with uh, civil liberties, the Espionage and Sedition Act passed. Uh, he had issues with civil rights. He uh, resegregated the federal workforce and uh, screened the birth of a nation at the White House. And he had human rights issues with the Treaty of Versailles when the Japanese put in the racial equality clause. He opposed that. Um, in light of that, did Edith ever? you know, try to have any impact impact on any of that, or was she an influence on that? And I guess the second question is, in light of that, if he wasn't president during wartime, would he have the status of being one of the top ten presidents? Thank you. Very good question. Um, no, I would say Edith had no influence on it. Interestingly enough, Ellen was a very different person, even though she also had grown up in Georgia, like 
Woodrow Wilson had. A lot of the people who were living in the alleyways were African-American or were immigrants from other countries. And her efforts for the alley bill were recognized by the African-American press, the B, and she was applauded for that. Some people have thought that maybe she was responsible for the resegregation because that occurred when she was first lady. But I think it unlikely, his entire cabinet practically was full of Southerners. I think that they had much more influence on him than she did. She had all of her life made a conscious effort to evolve her thinking from the way she was raised. And she talked about it frankly. Uh, but I did not find that kind of evolution in Edith. Um, I thought Edith was, like Woodrow, pretty unenlightened in that regard. Um, no, I think you're right that, that the presidents that we generally consider among the greatest are the ones who preside over wartime because it challenges them as nothing else will. However, even before the war, he had a very solid legislative record um, during his first year in office. He passed a lot of very important legislation and uh, signed a lot of important laws into being. So I think he would certainly have always rated as a, as a very solid president. Um, but I agree with Edith that, um, you know, there, there was a very bad feeling created about the Treaty of Versailles, not just the League of Nations. But uh, I think that damaged his reputation also. I mean, it's sort of the wartime can cut both ways. When he left office, he was very unpopular because the American people did not want to embrace internationalism after the World War I episode. And they were very reluctant to get into a second war for that reason. Um, so it is a very mixed bag. Um, I think one of the reasons he is considered an important president is because he had the vision of the League of Nations, which later became the United Nations. And um, I think people credit him with that. Thank you. Having the access to the letters and to the documents, I, I would, it's kind of a treasure to go through. Everybody goes into any project or any conversation with preconceived ideas, biases. What was the most standout moment for you when you're going through those that kind of shattered one or more of what you went in with? Very good point. And, and certainly I had many, many aha moments. But I was sort of assigned to do this book by the series editor who was a great mentor of mine. I'd never heard of Ellen. I figured if I'd never heard of Ellen, she must be a non-entity. Um, but what I discovered was that she had very, very great influence on the role of the First Lady, although indirect. Um, in the Wilson administration, there was an assistant secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, and his wife was a Washington wife at that time. And as one contemporary said, you couldn't move in polite society in those days if you couldn't talk alleys. Ellen made this very fashionable. And Eleanor Roosevelt was actually invited to some of the cabinet wives' luncheons, even though her husband was not technically in the cabinet. So she was able to observe Ellen Wilson up close and personal. And more importantly, to see what she was doing, that she was going out there, she was taking all these congressmen through the alleys, and she was lobbying them. As I mentioned, the first bill, the one that, Alan, that Ellen worked for and that was passed on her deathbed, um, the first part of it was passed on her deathbed, 
um, failed to be implemented. The first thing that Eleanor Roosevelt did as First Lady was to call up all those women from the National Civic Federation and go right back up to the alleys and work again to get an alley bill passed. And not only that, she worked for 12 years to get various pieces of legislation passed. There was no other First Lady between Ellen Wilson and Eleanor who was an activist like that. And I think that when a modern First Lady has a cause of her own, and she looks to Eleanor Roosevelt as a role model, she's really looking beyond her at Ellen Wilson. And that was a real surprise to me. Christy, uh, knowing that you, the uh, book is about Edith and, I'm sorry, Ellen and Edith, and that Woodrow just happened to be the president, <laughs> a significant one at the very least, was Ellen pleased that, uh, other than with the, the uh, result, that uh, she would leave the life, lead, uh, leave the life, I'm sorry, leave the life as the professor's wife at Princeton to become the first lady of New Jersey, and then secondly, to leave that life and move on to the difficulties that she might experience in Washington. No, she was not happy, and, and she actually wrote somebody just as they were leaving Princeton to say, I'm afraid that all those happy times are over. And, and she didn't even like being the, the, the wife of the president of Princeton because they had to move, this, move from this beautiful house which she had designed and furnished and decorated to her taste and was just really arranged for their lifestyle, move into the president's house, and she redecorated it, but she was never as happy there as she'd been in her own place. And um, she, she really was very happiest being the wife of a professor, she thought that she was a real intellectual. And, and, and as First Lady, she was not particularly popular because she was a real blue stocking. She took pride in being able to make a dress for 60 cents and wear it year after year. Uh, and, uh, you know, Washington doesn't like that. They want a fashionable First Lady. She didn't want to have an inaugural ball. She thought that was frivolous and that you had to be dedicating yourself to some important mission. And uh, even Eleanor Roosevelt said that Ellen Wilson was not overburdened with charm. little catty remark there. Um, but she nevertheless learned from her. <laughs> what happened to their children? Uh, the middle child, Jesse, married a lawyer, and their son, Francis Sayer, became dean of the Washington Cathedral. The youngest daughter, called Nell, married Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of the Treasury, who was about 25 or 30 years older than she was. And they had some children, and then he divorced her and married somebody even younger. Uh, and the third child, Margaret, I think might have also been influenced by the family legacy of, of mental difficulties. She was in and out of institutions. She was a singer. She sang for troops during the war. But she ended her life in an ashram in India, and she never married. You mean the National Cathedral? Yes, I do. And Woodrow Wilson is buried there. Well, and so question. is Edith. Why yes. is he buried there? Uh, Edith decided to have him buried there. Uh, he did not want to, I think they discussed it before his death. He did not want to be buried in Arlington Cemetery because they'd taken that land from the Lees. And he thought that was wrong. So he didn't want anything to do with Arlington Cemetery. Uh, he could have been buried in the Congressional Cemetery, which is where important people were buried before uh, they had Arlington Cemetery. 
but Edith kind of negotiated with the dean of the National Cathedral. The National Cathedral was just beginning to be built at that time. And they were sort of eager to have important people buried there. As a matter of fact, William Howard Taft wrote his wife, whatever you do, don't let those body snatchers at the cathedral get me. <laughs> so she was able to, to make uh, arrangements. He was originally buried in the crypt because that was the first part that was built. And then around the time of his centenary, he was moved up to the, to the main area, which is where he is now. Edith is buried in the crypt. Well, my second question is about the future. Um, how do you think historians and authors are going to do their research when husbands and wives don't correspond my letter anymore? That is a good question. All I can say is email is better than phone calls. And there was a while there where people were calling all the time. They weren't writing letters, and they weren't even writing emails. So, you know, my Google account says it's going to archive these letters forever. Sometimes I think that would be terrible, and I should hit the delete button more often, but uh, at least there is some record. And nowadays, they say, you know, your cell phone broadcasts your whereabouts at every single minute that you're on it. So who knows what they're going to find out. <laughs> Thank you so very much. Thank you.